every now and then, I look in my bulletin, I realize the sermon's coming up, and I see my name there, and I wonder, am I really supposed to be the one to prepare and deliver the sermon? And I think God reminds me of that, prompts me to think that, to uh, cause me to realize He can use any instrument to accomplish His purposes. Um, I think with the Apostle Paul, who is equal to such a task? I think with King Solomon, who is able to govern this great people of yours? Uh, as a prayer, he lifted up to heaven. And um, so this morning, let's come with expectancy, not of what Peter Wong may tell you that strikes you as interesting, but an expectancy of how the living God himself will speak to us through his word. Amen? Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we won't get there for a little bit, but keep your finger there if you don't have a Bible. Uh, grab one under the chair in front of you, and you can find Ephesians 4 on page 949. It has been a while. The last time we were in the book of Ephesians, it was the second Sunday of Advent. And of course, after that, we had some special Christmas season services. We kicked off our new year with three grace stories. There are always um, random weeks in between because of um, special events or vacations. Uh, But here we are. And uh, the question is, how could you possibly catch up on 19 sermons covering three and a half chapters over about a year that we've been in Ephesians? Um, one answer is it's not possible, unless you had listened on the website, and they're all there if you're interested in catching up that way. But one of the best pieces of advice I could give you, wherever we are in the book of Ephesians, is for you to go home and open your Bible and read Ephesians all at once. It's not that big of an effort. It'll take you 20 to 25 minutes. You and I waste three times that amount of time on a regular basis before lunchtime. 20 to 25 minutes to get a bird's eye view of the Apostle Paul writing a letter to these Christians in the city of Ephesus. That's the best way you could catch up and keep reading um, this letter as we spend the rest of our spring um, digging into these um, details in chapter 4 and then soon enough into chapter 5. Don't read it as an assignment. Read it because you are desperate to hear from God. Read it because you're hungry for more of God and he will meet you in that act of faithfulness on your part. So um, instead of giving you highlights of what we've covered so far, I've tried that approach at times, and it's frustrating because it's just a sprint. Um, Instead, I want to give you one single sentence for each section of Ephesians that we've covered so far, two per chapter, okay? They're going to be on the screen. Uh, Read along with me. This is what Paul has said. First section of chapter one, you have access to every spiritual blessing in Christ according to the perfect plan of God. Second half of chapter one, Paul says, I'm always praying that you would know God better, his hope, his riches, his power. First part of chapter two, you were dead in sin, but God made you alive with Christ, and this is pure grace. It's a gift. End of chapter two. We were enemies of God, but he reconciled us to himself through Christ's death and resurrection, and that power unites human enemies in Christ. 
and builds us up together into a holy temple, which is how God makes his presence known to the world. In chapter 3, Paul says this radical unity is the mystery of Christ, which has now been revealed through the Holy Spirit, not only to us in the church, but to spiritual powers. That was pretty striking. End of chapter 3, Paul prays again. I pray that God would give you power so that you would know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for you so that you might be filled with all that God intends for you. And then the beginning of chapter 4, build the church in the unity of the Spirit through the Spirit gifts that Christ the King gives to his church so that the people of God are equipped for ministry and grow to maturity as each member of the body does its work. Here we are, chapter 4, verse 17. Listen carefully. These are God's words. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord God, by your same spirit, the spirit of Jesus, who led Paul in writing this letter, enable us hearing these words 2,000 years later to receive them as words of life, to respond in holiness and obedience and to honor you as the God who alone gives life through your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, Two headings today. We'll spend a little bit more time on the second one, but we'll start with this. You were they. First thing we notice here is that Gentiles are really nasty people. Not making that up. Paul lays it out right here in detail. Let's just walk through some of these phrases piled upon phrases. Their their thinking is futile, empty. Their understanding is dark. They can't see. They're separated from the life of God, which means they're uh, experiencing spiritual death. That flows from ignorance, which is the result of hardened hearts. He's not done. They've lost all sensitivity. They're, They're callous. They've given themselves over to sensuality. They've dived deep into sin. And the last phrases in verse 19 should really go together. They are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They can't get enough. 
These people are monsters spiraling down the sewer in their sin. Thank God when we gather as a church in our holy and sanctified selves, those people are far from us. Oh, wait, that sounds like the Pharisees. It sounds like the people Jesus was always throwing serious shade at. Not the broken and messed up people, but the sanctimonious ones who think themselves above the failures and weaknesses and messiness of people around them. The Apostle Paul should know because he started out as a Pharisee, looking down on those who would follow this Jesus, this so-called risen Savior. And that's not what he's saying here in Ephesians. Listen to him carefully in verse 17. I tell you, and I insist on it in the Lord. He's using the the power of Jesus to give his words greater authority that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. First of all, Gentiles literally means the nations. And what Paul means when he's talking about those people, the nations, is uh, folks who live separate lives uh, from the truth that God has revealed to his people. They don't care, they don't pay attention, they don't uh, align themselves with that truth. It's, um, they're people from a pagan background. It's Paul's way of talking about people who are not believers, okay? If he feels the need to tell the Ephesian church, don't live like them any longer, it's probably because they still do to some extent. They still struggle with temptation to fall back into their old, old, old ways. Don't do that anymore, he says. Question for you. You don't have to raise your hand unless you want to. Anyone, anyone have a, a really nasty neighbor? You know, you, you like where you live for the most part, but there's just one guy around the corner that just ruins everything. I'm not thinking about anyone in particular. And I wonder if you were to raise your hand, if by some chance a guy on the other side of the sanctuary is also raising his hand and he happens to be your neighbor. (laughs) You're both thinking, yeah, if we could just get rid of that one guy, everything would be great. If you're married, is your spouse the main cause of most of your problems? And right on cue, both of you raise your hand. Each of you whispers, I hope you're listening to this. Right? We, we constantly are doing this, right? What's your biggest problem? And, and both are guilty. It's so easy to think of ourselves as a fine person, very respectable on the outside, mostly good. Occasionally I mess up. Occasionally I make a dumb decision. But for the most part, not bad. But that's exactly what the devil wants you to think. He wants you to increasingly think you're good and you're better. That thought, that attitude hides under the surface, but it has a powerfully toxic impact on your soul. Why do I say that? And, and don't believe that it's exaggeration. Because uh, you lose a sense of desperate need for the rescuing grace of God. You, you lose the truth behind just as I am. And I don't remember all the phrases that Steve listed for us, but desperate for rescue was one of those phrases. Empty and needing filling. Guilty and needing pardon. The more you look in the spiritual mirror and you think, not bad, 
could be worse, but not bad, you fall into the hands of the devil who would whisper that in your ear. Why do you need Jesus? Why do you need any grace? You, you construct what you need yourself. Why do you need every spiritual blessing in Christ? You're, you're creating all the blessing you need through your own smarts and hard work and great personality. It's toxic to your soul. You start to think that you're more savable than those other sinners. Insert whatever category of people in life that you most disdain and despise and thank God you're not like just like the Pharisee. That was the object of Jesus' criticism. The Bible, thankfully, does not allow us to stay in that self-delusion. If you want to grow in confidence, if you want to experience affirmation, if you want to gain real success, the way to experience it starts with actually seeing yourself as you are. The picture Paul paints here, verses 17, 18, and 19, is ruthlessly honest, but it's not mean. It's, the, it's accurate. It's the truth. And it leads to grace. This understanding that apart from God's intervening, transforming grace in your life, this is what you would be like. These verses would be an appropriate summary of your biography. They'd be an apt epitaph on your tombstone. People who come to your funeral would be like, that's pretty much him. Verses 17, 18, and 19, as ugly as they are, do you know that about yourself? That apart from uh, faith in Jesus Christ, you have a life underneath the surface of futility and darkness and death and and ignorance. And the only way to resolve your life of separation from God, verse 18, is to place your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of God the Son, Jesus. And if you are already a follower of Christ, same question, do you know that you were they, these ugly, nasty Gentiles, and that you would still be they if it were not for the mercy of God in Christ. Author and counselor Ed Welch says this, one of the signs that you're a Christian is that your sin afflicts you instead of delighting you. Your sin afflicts you. It, it, it causes unease. It, it creates spiritual malaise. Sometimes when you're not right, Physically, emotionally, uh, spiritually, uh, could it be that you're stuck in sin? You're not willing to look in the spiritual mirror and see yourself as you really are. And God is allowing that sin to afflict you. If you don't feel it, if you grow callous to it, maybe you're not in Christ. Maybe you think it's not a big deal. One of the signs that you're a Christian is that your sin afflicts you. It doesn't let you go. It brings you to your knees instead of delighting you. Sin reflects who you once were if you're a Christian, but are now no longer. It represents death, but the Bible says you've been, if you're a Christian, you've been rescued from death. Um, This is what Paul's been highlighting in Ephesians about one's uh, new identity in Christ. Back in chapter 2, first few verses, 
He said this, you were dead in sin in which you used to live, but God made us alive with Christ. That's who you once were, no longer. Later on in chapter 5, verse 8, he'll say, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And so when Paul starts saying in verses 17, 18, and 19 here in our passage, you must no longer live like this, he's ready to unpack in detail what life in Christ looks like. That's the rest of Ephesians. So we'll spend the rest of our time walking through uh, this spring, and it starts with getting dressed. That's our second heading this morning, getting dressed. You ever hear the, the saying, clothes make the man? You heard that? It puts a lot of value in how one looks, how one presents him or herself. Uh, my first job out of college, I remember getting shipped down to Tampa, Florida with about 40 other newbies straight out of college uh, to work for this consulting firm that used to be called Price Waterhouse, just PW. That's what they did. They shipped us down to Tampa and they put us up in townhouses. And um, early on in the first week, one of the presentations that we sat through with slides and samples and all was they they brought in wardrobe consultants for the men and for the women separately. And and the message was this, we're covering your housing, we give you an allowance for food, the per diem, so you've got money, young graduates of college with your first job, to spend on your wardrobe. The importance of looking professional. Guys, these are the kinds of shirts you should buy, and this is the ratio you should have in your closet. So we all went shopping like good new employees and showed up the next week looking all professional, still knowing absolutely nothing (laughs) to do this work. Do clothes make the man? Maybe having a plan and get dressed and not just throw on some things and, and shave and, and do all this, maybe that stimulates a sense of professionalism. Maybe that stirs up uh, a sense of responsibility. You know, I, I have to show up for work now. Um, I have this job. But clothes, we could generalize. The, the externals of our lives absolutely cannot indicate what is truly within our core values, right? The principles with which we live our lives. So clothes make the man not really true when it comes to your wardrobe, but absolutely true when it comes to your spiritual health. It's right here in our text. Look at verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life three things. I'm numbering them because we'll do some compare and contrast with Colossians, right? Parallel passage. Put off... Be made new, put on. Numbers one and three are what we'll call uh, gospel dressing. Put off and put on. Um, In his letter to the Colossians, Paul says these same three things, but he says it in a different order. This is what he says. He's talking about a particular issue um, in verse nine. Do not lie to each other. Why? Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. A little bit different order there, right? Put off, put on. Gospel dressing. When Paul says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, he's pointing to something that happened at conversion. And this is how this Colossians passage 
describes what's going on, okay, with, again, with this particular example. Colossians 3.9 says, don't lie. Why? Because you took off those lying clothes. That's not you anymore. It, it doesn't say don't lie because you're not supposed to. Don't lie because you get caught. Don't lie because that's a bad boy. God doesn't like bad boys. That's not what the gospel, uh, according to Colossians, says. It says don't lie because you've taken off those lying clothes. You took off that old identity, that old self with its practices associated with death and emptiness and futility and darkness, Ephesians 4.17. That's not you anymore. In Romans 6.6, 6, Paul says this, we know that our old self was crucified with uh, Christ so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. doesn't mean that we don't, we don't sin anymore. It means that the power, the enslaving power of sin no longer has mastery over you. You can rely on God's power to break free from sin. And then um, chapter 6 of Romans verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is true of you. Who you once were is dead It's been nailed to the cross through the body of Jesus. But you need to continue to think upon these things. Consider that. Count yourself. Reckon yourself, an old translation puts it. Put off your old self means that Galatians 2.20, one more verse, is true of you. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It'd be worth reading those uh, verses again and, 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 and connecting the dots uh, this week to meditate on what Christ has done for you. Conversion involves this growing awareness that there's nothing in you that's worthy of salvation, that there's a debt to be paid back to a holy God that you've transgressed and it can never be paid. But conversion involves trusting that Christ's substitute death was in your place to pay your debt for you. The old self is dead. And the truth has every relevance now in the midst of ongoing battle with sin. It's so important to preach to ourselves constantly, that's not me anymore. That's death. That's futility. That's darkness. Jesus suffered hell so I don't have to, and my old sinful self died with him on the cross. To live a life worthy of the calling you've received, first verse of Ephesians 4, is only possible if you know that your old identity is gone and know the new identity that you have put on. This is the other part of getting dressed in the gospel. The gospel isn't just putting off the old self by believing in Jesus and your sins are forgiven and your debt is paid. It is that, but it's more. Jesus gives you something incredibly rich, amazing, limitless. He lets you wear the identity that he has earned as the perfect son. Perfect son, why? Because he obeyed perfectly and the delight of the Father is properly given to him. The the approval and acceptance of the Father is properly given to Jesus. He lets you wear his identity. 
And so putting on the new self is like covering over the messiness and filth of your sinful heart because Jesus' white robe, white because he's pure and clean, covers over every part of your being. And when the Father looks at you, he sees whiteness, purity. He sees Jesus instead of the way you still are, needing to be renewed. Paul writes this in Galatians 3, verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Gospel dressing is the message that Paul is emphasizing. In between 22 and 24, put off, put on, Paul inserts this. Verse 23 helps us to see what we're to do with this gospel dressing. Be made new in the attitude of your minds. It's a continual thing. Remember the the order in Colossians. We could add this helpful word already. You have already taken off your old self, and you have already put on the new self. And then he says this, which is being renewed, ongoing process, in knowledge, in the image of its creator. This isn't just intellectual data. This, this isn't theological facts, you know, a library that you need to build in, 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 your, in your mind. Um, this is what Paul will write um, elsewhere in Romans 12 too. Therefore, um, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why does he continue to use this kind of language? of attitude and mind and perspective. Remember that Paul's talking about how to live life in Christ, how to live holy lives. And here's the principle. You cannot change your behavior without first changing your thinking and your attitude and your, your perspective. You, know, you cannot engage in moral improvement without starting with spiritual transformation that is rooted in what you think about God and his world and your sinful self. Think about such things. Here in Ephesians, he's reminding the Christians that they have already put off their old identity in sin. And they have put on their new identity in Christ. And in between, spiritual renewal, verse 23 It involves constantly reflecting on what this gospel dressing involves. It involves reminding ourselves of old and new. This has gone, the new has come. Next week, we will begin to to walk through one sentence or one verse at a time. Practical, detailed instruction on uh, what life in Christ involves. It involves speaking truth to your neighbor. It involves restraining anger, working honestly, avoiding unwholesome speech, living sexually pure lives. Lots of detailed things to wrestle with. And the only way to experience real spiritual renewal in any of these areas of life, we'll keep going until we finish the letter. There's practical uh, section after practical section. 
The only way to experience real powerful spiritual renewal, the only way to avoid falling into a we need to do these things in order to please God, because that's what a, a single verse in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 might sound like, the only way to avoid that, the only way to experience real renewal is to feed on the roots, this next slide, that we spent several months walking through, chapters 1 through 3, your identity in Christ. This is who you are, not because of anything you have done, but because of his mercy in Christ, because of who he has made you to be. And that leads right into verse 17 of our, our, our passage. This is not who you are any longer. Contrast, death, uh, life, uh, death, now life, darkness, now light. You put off that old self already. You've put on, you're wearing Jesus' blood-bought identity. And then the rest of the letter, instructions for holy living. Now, be who God has made you to be. You were created to be like God, verse 24, in true righteousness and holiness. That's the foundation it's going to be the springboard. That, that's going to be the, the, the basis uh, which we will repeatedly come back to when we're focusing very intently on a question like anger. How do I avoid anger? Such an elemental part of battling anger is that's not who you are anymore. You are in Christ. You've put on his blood-bought identity Now be who you are. We'll unpack it uh, along with many other instructions in the months to come. Let's pray. Lord, you've done this work. All we can do is sing a song like, just as I am. We, We bring nothing to the table. We can offer you nothing of merit. But we simply come with empty hands, outstretched arms, hungry hearts and minds that you would fill us up with the Holy Spirit, that you would fill us up with the truth of your word, that you would fill us with everything Jesus is, that we might know how wide and long and high and deep is his love for us and stand firm on that foundation of who you say we are and then walk by faith in expressing that new self, new identity. Lord, Walk with us. Change us from the inside out. Help us put sin to death that we might live for righteousness. We pray in the name of the risen Savior, Jesus himself. Amen.